will get less points, but they still do get points. And a lot of these objectives have something to do with um, making neighborhoods of six size and four size, or having all the pools in one row completed, things like that. The game will end when somebody fills in all of the houses in the residential area, somebody can't place anything three times, or somebody completes all three objectives. And whoever has the most points at the end wins. So that's kind of the general overview of how Welcome To works. And it has been extremely popular. And so they've come out with quite a few expansions, making slight tweaks to this basic rule set. The thing might be a change of map, it might be a change of rule set, it might be a change of goal cards. There's even a legacy version of it out now called Welcome To The Moon, which was decently popular. But the thing about all of these expansions are is that each expansion is a little bit pricey. It's like mm, between eight and $10, I think the last time I checked for one expansion. And there are quite a few of them now. And then you also have to decide whether you want the dry erase boards or you want the paper version, because I think the original Welcome 2 comes with a paper version, at least our original one did when we bought it a couple of years ago. But now the Welcome to Collector's Edition tries to help you out with that because what it does is it includes all of the expansions that have come out with it, even the ones that were only available as a print and play like the Quack expansion that came out during COVID, and it puts them as dry erase boards. Now, unfortunately, we thought that because we bought it in France, we would get the Le Petit Mort expansion, which is a, because of licensing, it's only available in France. But unfortunately, it doesn't, which kind of makes sense because I think they're going to do Welcome to Collector's Edition abroad. But for the most part, all of the expansions are now included. And for $40, it is actually tends to be a really good deal because like I said earlier, the expansions themselves can come out to $8 to $10. I think you can get them on sale sometimes for cheaper than that. But for the most part, it's like one expansion is going to be $8 to $10 and there's like four or five different expansions. So just right there, you have $40 or $50 when you get the Welcome to Collector's Edition for $40, which includes all of the expansions, makes them as dry erase boards, and so it becomes a really good value. Not only that, but there really is something psychologically about having everything in the same box that makes you more likely to actually play with all the expansions. We actually have a couple of the expansions in our Welcome To box, but it didn't fit in the original box, so then we have another box of some of the expansions. And we just haven't really played many of the expansions. In fact, I think we've already played more of the expansions in the couple of weeks that we've had the Welcome To Collector's Edition than we did for a year in which we had the expansions in our original base game. It also matters that we really do like the dry erase boards that come with it. It just makes it so much easier to clean up and things. I am just really honestly impressed by this collector's edition for it to the point where it now comes down to, okay, which version of Welcome To should you get? I think in the perfect world, you would have probably a Board Game Arena account so that you can try Welcome To online first. And then if you like it, then you can choose whether you get Welcome To Collector's Edition if you want to play the regular game or Welcome To The Moon if you want to do a legacy version of the game. Both of them have this kind of, okay, you're going to play a regular version of Welcome To, but then you're going to kind of do a bunch of different stuff with the same basic rule set, but we're just going to tweak this and tweak that a little bit and change it up just a bit to keep things interesting. Both of them have that, so you can kind of choose your course. But even if you can't do that, I have a hard time, unless you're able to get a bunch of the expansions on sale, I have a hard time justifying, like, if you decide that Welcome to Base Game isn't enough, 
I feel like maybe you should just try selling the Welcome to base game for what you can get and just moving up to the Collector's Edition because there is just so much playability in this Collector's Edition where it's just like it's going to be the same price as getting just a few of the expansions. So you might as well just have all of them and have them with these nicer components so that you can really enjoy everything the Welcome to franchise has to offer. It sounds like I'm shilling for them. I don't know. But I really like the game. Simachan loves the game. So we are just already fans of this game. And the fact that we now have a collector's edition that puts all of the stuff into one box. So now we can just have one box to carry around. And it's not even a big box. It's like smaller than most of the games that I have actually still. We're just really happy with the collector's edition. And that is the Welcome to Collector's Edition. The original design is by Benoit Turpin, but it is also designed by Alexia Allard. The art originally is by Anne Heitzig, but this collector's edition features guest art by various artists like Vincent Dutrait and Beth Sobel, and it is published by Blue Cocker Games. Now, the next game to talk about is the team-based trick-taking game, Hasp. Now, Hasp has a lot of things that you might have heard in other games, but trying to put them into kind of a new package. So right away to understand the game, you have to know that there is a permanent Trump suit of the gray suit. Is it gray? Is it black? I'm not really sure. But then unless you're playing a two player game, you'll also have a person pick to have either a second suit that is the Trump suit or pick that there is no Trump suit for that round. Now, Hasp is a must follow game in which whatever the suit the starting player plays, everybody must follow that suit. So if they start with a red suit, then everybody else needs to play red. And if they can't, then they must follow with a Trump suit. And only then if they can't do that as well, then they can play something of a different suit. Whoever plays the highest value wins. Now, you want to make sure that you're also keeping track of what cards you're winning because each card will have a different number of dots on it. And these dots are going to be what determines who wins at the end of the round. Some cards have one dot, some two, some three, and some four. And then at the end of the round, you're actually going to count up the number of dots that your team took in the tricks. And whoever has the most amount of dots on their cards wins the round. Now, typically when you win the round, you're going to win one point, but there is a way to in fact win more points if you win that round. And that is by predictions. Yes, predictions. After being dealt your cards, you can make a prediction of how you think the round is going to go. First, you can do one of two predictions that you've probably seen in other games. Either you think you're going to win all of the tricks, in which case you're going to raise the pool of instead of winning one point for the round, you'll whoever wins the round gets three points. Or you can shoot the moon and say, we are going to take no tricks this round. Again, adding two points to the pot. But there's also two other kinds of predictions that are a bit strange. And they are that I'm going to win the round. But in order to actually make these predictions, you have to do either a minor find or a great find. To do a minor find, you have to have both the seven and eight in your hand. You show it to the table showing them, I have a seven and an eight, and I predict that I'm going to win this round. And then you add another point to the thing. But you can also do a great find, in which is the same thing, except instead of a seven and eight, you would do a nine. You would show the table, hey, look, I have the nine, and I predict that we that my team is going to win this round. I keep saying I, but I mean my team. In either case, you are going to add one point to the pot, meaning that the winner of the round takes two points instead of one point. 
You play until one team achieves 12 points, or if you're playing a two-player game, it goes to eight points. Whoever gets there first wins. And that's basically how you play Hasp. Now, I should say something before I get into the actual like review portion of this, which is I was taught this game by the publisher, who has also featured on a previous podcast episode where we talked about developing and producing and designing games, right? And we were actually talking because I have a cool announcement about Hasp at the end of this review, so stay tuned for that. But he basically said, I want your honest review of this game. I don't want you to hold back. I want you to tell me exactly what you think about this game. So, okay, here we go. So when I was done playing this game, I was kind of thinking about something that was both relevant to Hasp, but also to the trick-taking scene in general now. And it's this question that has really been on my mind since we finished playing Hasp. And that is, is being a good game good enough? And what I mean by that is, I, when we finished playing Hasp, I had this thought of, I think Hasp is a good game. But where does it fit in the landscape of trick-taking games in which now you have so many good trick-taking games? What is the difference between Hasp and everything else that you can walk into the store and buy? Because as we've talked about on this show, as other shows have talked about, we are in this trick-taking renaissance in which new good trick-taking games are coming out all of the time. And most of them have this very... Not, I don't want to say exotic is, is not the right word, but almost eccentricity to them that makes them so different that there is not possibly anything else in your collection that is anything close to it. And so you might have something like, I don't know, Cauldron 15, which is, you know, you want to win tricks, but you want to be careful not to bust. Ooh, that's interesting. That's like push your luck trick taking. Okay, that's you know, that's an easy thing to talk about. And we talked about it in our YouTube review. We've talked about Hipparchus on this podcast, which is a two-player trick-taking game, which right away, two-player trick-taking, interesting, okay? And none of the cards have values and you can't rearrange your hand. There's like lots of eccentricities to that game. But Hasp is a little bit different because while it does have some things that make it different, like the way that you have to have certain cards in your hand in order to be able to bet and it does have some interesting art which in Japanese we would kind of call busukawa because I think for me it's a little bit strange looking but to others it's very cute it's kind of that ugly cute thing that I I think I think a lot of people are going to like it I think a lot of people are not going to like it that kind of art but it is kind of nice like for example like the number one is this character that's kind of inspired by Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes that's just kind of like out and about and just kind of like happy with whatever they find even if what they find is like useless so that's kind of nice but besides this hasp is a very easy to understand love letter to traditional trick-taking games and so most of it and this is probably part of the point of the game is stuff that you have seen before things that are easy to understand, mechanisms that you've seen that would be rightfully at home on a Saturday morning that your grandparents would play. 
it's very much a love letter to that style of game. And so because of that, I think the next thing that we need to talk about is who this game is for and who this game is not for, who this good game is good enough for, and who this good game is probably not good enough for. And so let's start with who this is for, because I think that there is a very apparent group of people that would really enjoy Hasp. And that is that I think Hasp is a family weight trick-taking game. Now, when I say that, I mean in terms of like even Gudetama trick-taking game. I don't mean that it is only for families because I would play Gudetama, the tricky egg game, with adults. And that's why we put it on our holiday gift guide, actually, as one of the stocking stuffers. So I don't mean it's just for families, but I do mean that Hasp would be really, really good with families and in that family weight style of game. Because this would be a phenomenal opportunity for people to really learn the basics of trick-taking, or because this is a team game, to play it with kids or adults who maybe like that traditional thing. You can play this with grandma. You can play this with grandpa. You can play this with a six-year-old. I'm meaning it is that kind of game because there are no mechanisms, there are no eccentricities that make this overly complex or hard to understand. This game can be taught in about a minute. And generally speaking, because this is such a small deck too, this is only a 28 card trick taker, there's not a whole lot of different cards with different effects or anything like that. It's pretty simple. You're going to get pretty quick that the sixes are worth four points. You definitely want those. You're going to get that the ones and the twos are not that helpful. Like, okay, great. Now you're kind of understanding it. You can also learn trumps. Oh, what trump do you want? But you can also help out. Like this seems like a game in which Sumachan and I could probably go over for the holidays and play this game with her cousins that don't play trick takers at all. And Sumachan and I will be on different teams and we will each play with one of her cousins. So it'll be like me and one of her cousins versus Sumachan and one of her cousins. And we'll play this game together. Part of that is just because of the kind of inability to really run away with the game because of the way that the prediction system works. In other games, if you play a lot of times, you're able to kind of predict how the round is going to go and you're able to bet that round up and pretty much run away with the game. But because of this one and because you have to have certain cards in order to bid the, oh, I think we're going to win this round prediction, you tend to not have that really happen very much which again is very conducive to a family environment or an environment of people that maybe don't play these trick takers very much, whereas you who are listening to this might play a lot of trick takers. So that's one instance of who I think this would be for. Another one of who I think this would be for, and it's kind of related, but I just wanted to separate it out, are for people who want to get into team-style games, but find that games like Tichu or Yokai Septet are a bit too intimidating, which I've definitely heard multiple times before. Tichu, although it's traditional and kind of comes in this kind of cheap package, a lot of people are just like, there's so much going on. And there's so many people who have played this game for so long that I just like, I have want no part of this game because I'm just going to go in, I'm going to get my butt whooped every single time and it's not going to be any fun for me to do that. Yokai Septet 
can be a bit unforgiving, especially if you're not very good at the game. I think uh, Neelan from Board Game Barrage kind of had that complaint of he was the one who really was not very familiar with trick-taking in the group, or at least not as familiar as other people, and he was filled with this kind of anxiety that he was letting his teammate down the whole time. And that is very apparent in Yokai Septet. I definitely agree with that, although I really do enjoy the game. Hasp is much more conducive to trying to learn what is going on, trying to learn the game a little bit more. Because there are less cards, it is more learnable, and you can start getting the hang of things a bit quicker. You can also, because there is less of a runaway leader, you're just staying in the game more. And it makes it so that there is more engagement around the table continually. So whereas I think maybe some people are going to like it, and it's hard not to move into the other category of people who this is not for, but I think this game works really well for people who look at T2, who look at Yokai Septet and say, that is too intimidating, that sounds too complicated, that sounds like I'm going to have an anxiety-filled time. Okay, Hasp is definitely going to be much more for you. So then let's talk about the other group because we can talk about these things as features. And I, I feel like I've said this a lot in previous, in like recent videos and recent podcasts. So I'm sorry, but you can have these mechanisms that some will say are features of the game where other people will say these are bugs. Because for every person that is going to play Hasp and say, wow, this reminds me of a traditional trick-taking game. This feels like something I played growing up. Or this feels like something that I know my family would love because they played Bridge or they played Euchre or something like that, right? You are going to have people who sit there and go, well, then why wouldn't I just play those instead? Why wouldn't I just play Hearts? Why wouldn't I just play Spades? Or why would I play this over something else in my collection? And so I think the first thing to know if this is for you or not is you go look at your shelf. If you are looking at your shelf and you see games that are prediction-based games and you see that you already have seven of them, all right, you know what? You probably don't need Hasp. If you go to your shelf and you see team-based trick-taking games and you see, mm, oh, I see one, two, three, four, five of them, okay, then you probably don't need Hasp because you've already got enough for that. This is not going to be a game that I think if you are like a collector that already has 100, 200 trick takers already, I'm not really sure that Hasp is going to do it for you because of kind of what I said earlier, where for every single reason why this game is supposed to be a traditional trick taker so it keeps the mechanism simple and kind of things people have seen before, it's not eccentric enough to differentiate it in a collection of 100 or 200 games. I think Tom Vassell in his review of the game went a little too far by saying it's forgettable. I don't think it's forgettable. It is not to that extent whatsoever. I really only saved that adjective for very few games. But I think the better way to describe this game is a solid kind of all-around game that is not phenomenal at any one thing, but is solid. It almost is really apt to compare it to playing as Mario in like Smash Brothers or Mario Kart, where Anybody can succeed with Mario. It's just a very solid overall character, right? But eventually, you're going to get to the point where you're saying, you know what? Playing Mario is fun. But you know what? I want to 
do something a little bit different. I want to be somebody who is phenomenal at one thing and worse at other things because I think that the highs are going to be higher. Like when you play as Captain Falcon, it feels cool to do a Falcon Punch, even though it leaves you completely open for counters. But it's so much fun when you actually pull off a knockout with it. And that is where other trick takers are. The other trick takers are going to have these eccentricities that maybe are good for some people and really bad for other people. The highs are going to be really high, but the lows are going to be really low. But for some, that risk is worth taking. Hasp is in that middle. It is the Mario character. It is a solid, I can bring this to anybody and have a good time game, but the highs are just not up there. It is worth mentioning that this is a very small game, only 28 cards and some counters, and it's also pretty affordable. So if you are looking to give it a chance and because you're in that first group that I was talking about, then maybe it might be worth it. And even if it's not, then there's actually a chance for you to try this game out for free because the thing that the publisher Aggie Games and I were talking about is that Aggie Games is giving away three free copies of Hasp as part of our holiday giveaways. So like our other holiday giveaways that we've been doing thus far, you enter by doing anything like commenting, following, liking on us on any of our platforms. That's Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube. Each comment and each like on a different thing is one additional entry into the giveaways. Because we're doing this as a podcast as well, if you leave a five-star review with a comment, you're also going to be entered as an additional entry. In fact, five-star ratings with comments are actually worth five entries because you can only really do it once. Now, the other cool thing about this giveaway is that unlike our other giveaways, Aggie Games is going to pay to ship it anywhere in the world to you. So it doesn't matter where you are, you're not going to have to pay a thing for this game. So even if you're slightly interested, you think it might be a fun game to try out, then enter into the giveaway. And that is Hasp, designed by Dennis Kerps and Christian Crockton. The art is by Joseph Connui, and it's published by Aggie Games. Finally, let's talk about the spiritual successor to Watergate, a chess-themed two-player game called Match of the Century. And don't worry, that's going to be the last time I mention Watergate. Well, maybe not the last time. But you don't have to know what Watergate is. You don't have to have played it in order to play Match of the Century. Match of the Century is a two-player game in which you are going to be playing as the chess match between Boris Spassky, who was the world champion, versus Bobby Fischer. This was the Soviet Union versus the United States in the height of the Cold War. And you know what's really cool, and they did this with Watergate too, is they actually have a rule book that's in the box, and they also have a historical context manual, which is actually thicker than the rule book, so you can actually read all about it. Or there's a good documentary called, I think it's Searching for Bobby Fischer. I don't know, I'll put a link to the documentary in the show description below. Anyway, let's talk about the game though. Each player will have their own unique deck, and on each card is a black side and a white side. Every round you will take turns playing as black or playing as white. It matters because white gets to start the round. And what you are going to do on your turn is you are going to play to one of four different sections on the board. There's section one, and if you win section one, that's one point. Or you can play as section two, section three, or section four. You can go in any order. Wherever the first player plays to, the other player needs to play to the same location, and you will have a kind of battle, if you will. On the top of the card will be the strength of the card, and on the side of that will be an effect. 
you will actually play based on strength. Whoever's card has a higher strength will win that battle and win the points in that location. Now, you can heighten your power, you can increase your power, I should say, by playing some of the pawns that you have in your supply. So, for example, if I play a five strength card, I can put two pawns, two is the max, to make it worth seven strength because I really, really want to win that spot. You want to win these locations because you will get to move the tracker to your side of the track. If there is ever a point in the round in which there is no way that your opponent can get the tracker to their side of the track, or somebody just wins seven points during that round, then they win the match. It's the first player to actually win six matches that wins the entire game. But you don't always want to win these exchanges because whoever loses the exchange gets to do the effect. And some of the effects do some really powerful stuff, like adding cards to your hand or adding pawns to your supply. So there's like a pool and then there's the actual supply that you can use. I should say there's a supply and then there's like your pawns in your hand. That would probably be a better way to describe that. So you have to actually be able to move the pawns from the supply to your hand so you can use it. So some of the effects allow you to add pawns so that you can use them during the round, but there's other effects that'll help you decrease or increase mental energy. And this is a very important component of this game because on the bottom of each player's track, and this is asynchronous, Bobby Fischer has a different one than Boris Spassky's player, there will be a mental energy track. The further right you are means you have more mental energy, which means that you can have a higher hand limit you get to refill more pawns at the beginning of the round. And if you're far enough to the right, you actually start the round with advantages in points. So you might start the round with a one point or two points before you've even done anything. But if you go left, then you're losing cards from your hand limit. So for example, the highest hand limit you'll have in this game is seven. But if you go left, you're gonna only end up with five. It means that you might not get to refill your pawns at all. And if you're far enough left, you're going to start in the minus, meaning your opponent gets to start with advantages every single round. Add this to the fact that if you win the four spot on the board, which is the highest point total, you lose mental energy for winning that spot. And you suddenly have these different things that you have to balance. You have to balance winning and losing throughout the game. Where do you want to defend? Because the third option is also, if you don't want to win, but you don't want to lose, is just tying your opponent, in which case nothing happens. And this is an effective strategy during the game. I really need to be careful like when I say games and match during this game, because you win six of these games, you win the match. But there's also, this is a board game. So you win six of these little games, you win the entire game. There we go. Maybe that works. Anyway, I hope you get what I mean. But Oh my goodness, this game is so fun. Watergate is a game that I've been exploring a little bit more after our episode of Top 10 Two-Player Games because both Sam and I said it just missed our list. It was like both of our 11s or both of our 12s, I can't remember at this point. But I wanted to go back and explore it more after that. I'm like, oh yeah, this what this is a good game, right? And I'm playing it and I'm like, oh yeah, this is a good game. But I think Match of the Century might be better because I am so enjoying the uh, stress that you have during this game. It's a beautiful stress though, because while sometimes 
you are needing to decide if it's worth losing the game to improve your chances in future games. So for example, there's the zero card that allows you to resign the game right then and there, but you get plus one mental energy for every spot you haven't played yet. So of course you want to play that first, probably, because you're like, okay, then there's three, that's three mental energy. Three mental energy is a lot in this game. But at the same time, you're balancing that with the fact that you have to decide, is it worth giving up one of the six games that my opponent needs to win in order to win this match? Like, do I want to just give them one of those? Is it worth it for me? There's other cards in which you are actually making sure that, okay, do I want to win this? Because the card that they played first is a really good effect that's going to make me lose mental energy, or it's going to make me have to discard cards from my hand that I don't want to do. I want to win this spot, but I don't want that effect to happen. So maybe the best thing would be for me to tie. Is it possible for me to do that? Or one of the things that Simachan loves to do is it's a minus one mental energy to win the four spot. But the four spot is very powerful, right? It should be a difference. But what she likes to do is give me like the first couple games in that four spot and it automatically puts me down multiple mental energies. So now I need to play a game in which I'm going, okay, I cannot keep winning that four spot, even though I'm winning the first couple of games because I now have less cards in my hand. I have less pawns to help me strengthen my cards. And now she's all the way to the top and she's adding in, like she's starting every round with two points towards her side. So I need to win more than she does like she just has to win a couple of these spots and she's won the entire round so there's all these little things that you can do to win and you start really learning your opponent's play style and those are the kind of two-player games that I absolutely love of course I love it when there's a two-player game that I can bring to somebody new and we can have fun from the first time but I especially love a game in which I can play it with somebody and we start learning each other's strategies. So now, okay, the first couple games of Match of the Century was all me. I could win as both characters easily. But Sumachan learned my strategy. She learned what I wanted to do. She learned the places I wanted to win. And she has now won like three straight games of this because she found that she can effectively counter what I'm trying to do. So now it's my turn to try to take back momentum in this kind of series that we have going on in which, okay, so now she's like tied it at three or three. How can I counter her strategies? How can I kind of counter the fact that she's going to try to make me lose all of my mental energy? How can I counter that? How, what, like, what can I do when she's like basically resigning the games, when she's throwing away the first couple games in order to build up a, an effective, like almost engine that she's got going on her side? And you're kind of playing this differently with both characters too. I keep saying characters. I should say people because these are real people that you're playing. But like Bobby Fischer has either a lot of cards in their hand and a lot of pawns, or five cards in the hand. Whereas Boris Spassky, most of their mental energy track is six cards in the hand with just like a couple of pawns, but you can get all the way to seven, but you can also lose to five, right? So you're playing it in this different way too of like the Bobby Fischer player is really trying to make sure that they stay in the correct half of the mental energy track while trying to make Boris Spassky 
lose as much mental energy as possible. Use the fact that like Bobby Fischer will oftentimes have more cards in their hand and how can they get the advantage with that? Whereas Boris Spassky's player is being like, no, I definitely don't want to make sure, like I want to make sure that you are in the left side. I want to make sure you're at the five card spot. I cannot let you have the advantage in cards because then it's game over for me. And it's just so interesting that the cards, the effects, really certain ones will become good in certain times. Certain ones seem useless, but then your opponent will employ a new strategy to try to counter something you're doing. And you're like, oh, I suddenly understand what this card is for. It's something that I similarly said in innovation in a, in the review of like, you look at this card and you go, there's no way that that's what that card does. And we did the same thing in Match of the Century. We looked at a card, we said, is that really what this card does? We looked in the rule book. Yeah, that is what that card does. Okay, we're going to try using that card a couple times. And then you're figuring out of like, okay, actually, that card might seem good, but I can very effectively block it. And so it's not as good as it seems. And so there's all these little dances that you're almost doing with this game that it's actually almost hard, even though you don't need to know the first thing about chess to play this game. You don't have to know about the historical context to play this game. You don't have to know about chess to play this game. Like, it still feels almost like a chess match. You're dancing back and forth. Okay, I block you. I move here, okay? And you're gonna try to block me this way. Okay, well, all right, you know what? I'm gonna give up this game and try to come back again tomorrow. And all right, I got you the next game. Now I see what you're doing. Okay, now I'm seeing what strategies you're employing. I've got you next time. I think I'm figuring out how to effectively counter your strategy. Let's see if this works in the next time. Then you do that. And then they're like, oh, okay, now you're doing that. So now I have to change my strategy. How can I do it for the next game? How can I win the next game? It's all these little things that add up to a game that feels thematic, even though you can be like me and not care at all about chess. This makes me so interested in actually going and researching what happened in this match because I am so enthralled by the game itself. My master's is in political science. Watergate is one of those things where we learn so much about it. What led up to it? What was the context of what was happening at the time? And so when Watergate came out, it was like the theme, the mechanics, it was so cool. And then it, you come out with Match of the Century, and I had no expectations for this game because I did, wasn't really that interested in the historical context. I don't really like chess very much. So, of course, this game just doesn't seem like it's going to be like that interesting to me. But you know what? It's the follow-up to Watergate. I'm going to give it a chance. And boy, am I glad that I did because I am telling you, maybe it's recency bias, but I think right now if I had to choose between having Watergate in my collection and having Match of the Century in my collection, I think that I'm choosing Match of the Century. And that's Match of the Century, designed by Paolo Mori. The art is by Clemens Franz, and it is published by Deep Print Games. Well, that is going to do it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And of course, if you're interested in joining our giveaways, if you're interested in joining our coffee subscription, those links will be in the show description below. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to us. Arigatou gozaimashita. Until next time, jane. Ja